Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. Hey, good morning, everybody. We are a little lopsided today. I can just like stand over here and you guys out. Uh, yeah, open up your Bibles to Matthew six, cha- uh, Matthew chapter six, verse sixteen. We're on page eight sixty in the Pew Bible. If you're using that today, uh, as our normal, if you have any questions at any point. Throughout the sermon, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and text your questions in, and we'll take a look at those at the end. And let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for your presence. God, you you promise to never leave us or forsake us, Jesus. You say that you are with us always. And with all of the other voices and noises and lights and sounds and distractions in our world, um, I forget that sometimes. I don't recognize that you are here. And I pray that these moments on Sunday mornings... They do a lot of things, but I pray that one of the things that they do is they just give us the space to remember that you are here, that you are with us, that your spirit speaks to us through your word, through your people. God, I pray that as we um, continue on this uh, discussion of spiritual discipline that we've been on, that you would encourage us that you would exhort us, maybe that you would rebuke us if that's what we need this morning, uh, but that more than anything, that you would uh, remind us that these practices that you've given us are gifts of your presence, means of grace to recognize who you are and to draw close to you. And I pray that that would just be the experience of all of us this morning as we worship through the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. According to Healthline.com, there is a practice that reduces insulin resistance, fights inflammation, improves heart health, boosts brain function, aids in weight loss, increases growth hormone, extends longevity, and AIDS in cancer prevention. This practice is fasting. If you do a search on Google on fasting, thinking that you are going to be researching an ancient practice of the Christian church, you will quickly realize that you will not find any articles on that because they are all health websites talking about the physical benefits of fasting. 
Our culture has, is on a real fasting kick. Intermittent fasting is a real buzzword right now. And, and all of these benefits, I, I won't tell you whether those benefits are real or not. They'll probably all be wrong in a couple of years. But as of right now, people who want to care for their bodies fast. There are medical benefits. And so when we think about fasting in a list of spiritual disciplines, maybe there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Like what, what are we talking about this physical thing with these medical benefits for when we are talking about spiritual growth, being transformed to be more like Jesus? How does that work? What is that for? What is fasting doing in a list of spiritual disciplines? So this morning, what I want to show is three things. I want to show that our physical bodies actually matter in our process of spiritual transformation. I want to show that fasting is a physical bridge to spiritual change. And then I also want to show that Christians are expected to fast. So we're going to start with a big idea, and that's that our bodies matter. Our bodies are important. Uh, very few of us, I think, care about philosophy. Uh, it's, it's hard to understand. It seems divorced from our everyday reality, our everyday life. But the thing that I've recognized about the philosophical disciplines is that these ideas contain assumptions about the world that trickle down into our lives, usually without thinking about it. And there's a big question in the world of philosophy, and that's this. What is a human person? What is a human person? And, and maybe that's not a question that comes to the top of your mind ever, but that's the point. It's a question that is answered every day by every one of us without really thinking about it. So I want to give you a couple different answers to that question. One answer could be that, that we as people are equal, equivalent to our bodies. Anything that we say about I think or I believe or I love is just a series of chemical reactions in my brain. When my body dies... I cease to exist. This is what's commonly called a materialistic or naturalistic worldview. Maybe you've run into this out in the world. Maybe you hold that view today. You would say that, yeah, that, that makes the most sense to me. The physical world is all that there is. And to be a human person is to have this human body. Christians throughout the centuries have generally understood this to be false. Right? That, that no, there is an immaterial spiritual component to what it means to be a human person in addition to a physical body. So then maybe there's a second view of the answer, what is a human person? And that is that, that the person is radically distinct from the body. We are spiritual beings. We are encased in a physical shell. The body that we have is nothing more than a transportation system for our immaterial self. Maybe you've heard this in a Christian 
space when someone talks about their earth suit. That's kind of a common metaphor. The idea that we, we live in an earth suit and this suit is, is designed to give us function on earth and then someday we will go to heaven when we die or when the Lord returns and we will remove this earth suit and we will put on a heaven suit. And, and so the real us is this immaterial soul and we're just transferring from vehicle to vehicle as we go. Unfortunately, sometimes this can result in some really interesting ideas. Maybe you've talked to somebody or maybe you believe that that things like diet and exercise and healthcare, those things don't really matter because they're not real to you as a person. Your real self is spiritual. Much of the Christian church holds this view. And interestingly, a community that we would, as um, historically Orthodox Christians, would be at odds with philosophically, the, the trans community also holds this view. A group of people who would say that when there's a discrepancy between your body's testimony of your sex and gender and your internal psychological testimony of your sex and gender, when there's conflict there, Well, the body doesn't matter. The internal self is the determining factor, and you should be free to adjust or change or or, uh, manipulate your body in any way that you see fit because your internal self is primary and your body is just a vehicle. That's one way to see the human person. See, most of us don't sit around thinking about these ideas, but they trickle down and they shape what we believe about the world. I want to show this morning that there is biblical evidence to suggest that there is a third option, maybe a middle ground, where we see that there is a distinction in some sense between our immaterial self and our bodies, but that they are also deeply interconnected. Philosopher J.P. Moreland calls this functional holism, and he says, according to functional holism, while the soul or mind is in the body, the body-soul complex is a deeply integrated unity with a vastly complicated, intricate array of mutually functional dependence and causal connection. Those are big, big words. What he's saying is that your immaterial self and your physical body are connected to each other. They work together. They influence one another. What does the Bible have to say about this? Jesus says in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Now, Jesus here isn't talking about the medical health of the eye, but he is connecting a physical body part, the one that you see the world with, with moral vision, with ethical vision. The eye is different than the soul, but Jesus seems to think that it's not totally separate, that these two things function in tandem. Paul writes in Romans 6, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. It's possible that Paul could just be giving us a metaphor and maybe we read that verse and we just kind of think like, well, he's just, he's just talking poetically But what if he's saying that sin has power in its interaction with our physical bodies? Later on in Romans 12, 
He writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul is concerned here about how both our bodies and our minds relate to God and how we offer them both in worship. James is pretty blunt in James 3. He says, the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And again, we're quick to assume that James is just being metaphorical. He's just talking about our speech. But what does he mean by saying that the unrighteousness of the tongue stains the whole body? Dallas Willard writes, for good or for evil, the body lies right at the center of the spiritual life. I want to show you a picture this morning. This is a feelings map. Um, This is a study that was done where they asked just a bunch of people, when you feel a certain way emotionally, how does that show up in your body? And they did this big study and they kind of correlated all this data. And this tends to be the places in the physical body where different emotions show up. Now, some of us are more aware of this than others. I am terrible at sensing my own body. Really bad, but I'm learning. Like, it's my goal to get good at being able to understand my body. But some of you are excellent at it. Some of you right now go like, yep, when I'm mad, I can feel it in this part of my physical body. When I am sad, when I am proud, when I'm lonely or depressed, it manifests very specifically in different parts of my body. You're thinking of mental, emotional, spiritual experiences that show up physically. We have a, a saying in our culture. We, we say, trust your gut. What does that mean? I hated it when people said that to me. I don't know what, I don't, my gut feels like. All I know is what's in my head. But some of you know exactly what that feels like. Some of you can walk into a situation and go like, I can't explain this to you, but something's wrong and I can tell. That's weird, but it's cool too. Because I can't do it, I wish I could. See, what I think this means is that the immaterial part of you and the material part of you are deeply connected to one another. Again, Willard says, my body is the only body whose energy is directly accessible for my own use and satisfaction. I access it by choice. Therefore, my body is the original and primary place of my dominion and my responsibility. It is only through it that I have a world in which to live. Everything that you experience in your life, you experience through your body. And even if we can imagine being disconnected from our bodies in a disembodied existence, and there are some sections of Scripture that talk about that as a temporary outcome of our lives, currently, we only ever experience the world through our bodies. Your body matters to your spiritual transformation because your body is connected directly to your spirit. Changes in your immaterial self affect your body, but I would say that changes in your body also affect 
your soul. Think about dropping a piece of ice in a glass of water. The water gets colder, but at the same time, the ice gets warmer and slowly melts. Those two things work in concert with one another. So this is where we start talking about fasting. We, we tend to think of spiritual disciplines as a function of the mind. We think about God. We speak to God in prayer. We read the scriptures. These seem on one level to be intellectual disciplines. But fasting activates a completely different part of ourselves for the purpose of spiritual transformation. John Mark Comer says, drawing, fasting is drawing on the spirit's power, not through your mind, but through your stomach. So if fasting, if our bodies matter, and fasting is a spiritual discipline, what is fasting for? We talked all about these health benefits of fasting. I want you to set those aside for a second. Because we want to ask the question, how does fasting help you become more like Jesus? I want to share a couple different ways that fasting transforms us spiritually. Firstly, it gives us an opportunity to love other people. In the book of Isaiah, the people of God are complaining to God that they are doing their spiritual disciplines. They're just killing it with all of their devotional practices. And yet God is unhappy with them. And they say, why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. And the Lord responds, look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this? a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed, to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? This isn't the fast I choose. To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you. The Lord's glory will be your rear guard. God's critique of the Israelites here is that their fasting is disconnected from care for the poor. He says you you fast with contention and strife and strike viciously with your fist. They have this opportunity to love people and they respond Instead, in violence and anger. We have developed a word for this. That word is hangry. How many of you use that word to make an excuse for being unkind? I mean, isn't that really the only reason to use that word? Like, yeah, I did that thing and it was terrible, but I haven't eaten in three hours, so I have a good excuse. Now, this is... God says this is sin. And it spirals out of control in, among the people of God in Isaiah as an empty devotion that doesn't have any effect on the world around them. 
Their fasting is revealing to them that they do not actually have control over their bodies and that their bodies are causing them to sin. And furthermore, God says you should be using the resources that you save through not eating and give those to those in need. You should share your bread with the hungry. So maybe you're a person this morning that would say, man, I am so grieved by the injustices in the world. I get on the news and I look at all of the wars and the terrible things that are happening, or maybe I have relationships in my life where people are just hurting, and I just don't know what to do about it. And then we would do the caveat, except for pray. Like, like that, you know, yeah, we should pray. First of all, prayer is the be- best thing you could do about it. Prayer matters. Prayer changes things. But something else you could do, if that's heavy on your heart, is you could fast. God has appointed fasting as a weapon against injustice. And maybe you'd ask, like, how does that work? I don't know. That's not the point. The point is God says, hey, in instances in your life where you are recognizing your powerlessness and the injustice being done to other people, One of the ways you can enter into solidarity and care and prayer and grief and lament for those people is through fasting. Second way that fasting transforms us to be more like Jesus is the fight against sin and the pursuit of holiness. Listen to Paul here describe the enemies of Jesus. For I have often told you, Philippians 3, now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Your God is the one that you obey, the one whose voice you listen to. Is that your stomach? Arthur Wallace in his book on fasting says, we, when we cannot say no to the second helping of the food we like, though we do not need it, when we are forever having snacks between regular meals, when we crave special foods that tickle the palate and appeal to our fastidious appetites, when in a word food is an ever-present temptation to which we constantly yield, then it is clear we are in bondage. I'm not lost on the irony that it's Thanksgiving this week. I didn't didn't plan that. It just happened. We are a culture that in large part is in bondage to food. Americans eat more food than any other people on the planet. 42% of American adults are obese. And the cost of obesity-related diseases in the United States is $1.7 trillion, which is almost 10% of our entire gross domestic product. And again, set aside the physical health issues here. What is the spiritual issue? We as a people cannot say no to food and it is slowly killing us. Fasting is a tool by which we can learn to say no to things that our body wants. John Mark Comer again says, with fasting, we decide of our own accord to not give our bodies what they want, which is food. As a result, when somebody else decides not to give us what we want, we don't freak out, rage, or go ballistic on Twitter. We've trained our souls to be happy and at peace, even when we don't get our way. See, this has massive implications for all kinds of temptation. Even if you would say, like, food isn't really a big temptation for me. 
That's fine. I guarantee you there is something in your life that you are drawn to, that you shouldn't be, that is wicked and sinful, that you find yourself stuck in, that you want the power to overcome, but you can't seem to find it. I heard a pastor say once, the person that can learn to say no to a cheeseburger can learn to say no to pornography. If you take fasting seriously, you will find out that it is difficult. But as you do it, as you practice it, the Spirit of God in you will increase your self-control in all sorts of ways. And that self-control is blind to the temptation. Increasing your self-control with regards to food gives you self-control in regards to sex or money or power or influence or pride. Jesus says in Matthew 7, how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. That's a pretty sober warning. But what Jesus is saying is that the path towards him to be transformed is difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. And we have the opportunity to choose to make a difficult choice or an easy choice. Whether that's in relationship to money or relationships or jobs or ethical decisions, the possessions you have, food, time management, whatever. There is an easy path that is often satisfying our immediate physical desires. And that's usually not the path that leads towards Christ-likeness. Jesus says again in Luke 9, he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Practicing fasting is practicing denying yourself. I love this quote by uh, Basil the Great in about 350 AD. He says, strong, powerful medicines can get rid of annoying worms that are living in the bowels of children. If you thought it was hard in 2023, that's what it was like in the 300s. Fasting is like that. It cuts down to the depths, venturing into the soul to kill sin. And again, at the, at the top level, you might go like, that doesn't really connect in my mind that skipping a few meals would give me power to overcome sin. But that's actually how it's intended to work. And so if maybe you're somebody here today who's saying, man, I'm really struggling with fill-in-the-blank temptation. I just, I, 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 have, I don't have the self-control I need to overcome this. Become a person who fasts and build that self-control muscle. One more way that fasting transforms us to be more like Jesus is it gives us an experience of intimacy with God. In John 4, we read, just then, Jesus has been talking to the woman at the well. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. But in the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? They're super confused. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. 
See, Jesus tells us that he is being spiritually nourished in spite of his physical hunger. And maybe even because of his physical hunger. We read another story of Jesus in Matthew 4. He's led, he's baptized and he's led up by the spirit into the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, that's a long time. Matthew says he was hungry. (laughs) Yes. Then the tempter, Satan approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is physically hungry. He is physically weak. If you don't eat for 40 days, you will be weak. But he is spiritually strong. He is intimately connected to and aware of the will of his father in that moment and has not been given permission by him to do a miracle and turn these stones into bread. There's kind of a... um, well, there's a reality, I guess, that, that being, being drunk with alcohol or high on drugs, um, it, people get this experience, but it also kind of dulls your senses. You're not as, you're not, that's why you're not supposed to drink and drive, right? Because you're not as sharp behind the wheel. The strange reality is that food while necessary for our survival, can also serve to dull our spiritual senses. If you've ever fasted for three, four, five days, you will begin to experience mental and spiritual clarity that maybe you've never experienced before. And Jesus knows this, and he experiences this deep satisfaction in God, even though he is physically hungry. Cornelius Cornelius Plantinga says, self-indulgence is the enemy of gratitude and self-discipline, usually its friend and generator. That is why gluttony is a deadly sin. The early desert fathers believed that a person's appetites are linked. Full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger, hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil the appetite for God. I think this is one of the greatest uh, challenges that our culture has right now and has for the last many, many years, we are so satiated with things that dull our appetite for God, our food, our entertainment, our possessions. All by themselves, none of them are bad things. None of them are wicked things. We shouldn't um, be that hard on the fact that we have these things, that we've been blessed as a nation. There's nothing wrong with that. But all of these material indulgences are opportunities to turn our hearts from Christ. There's this trope in the media that, and and even in in culture that, that if you want a deep spiritual experience, if you want enlightenment, you should do drugs, right? LSD or magic mushrooms or pot or whatever. The scriptures actually show us the opposite of that, that that fasting is often the place where greater spiritual awareness shows up. And so maybe you're here this morning and you would be someone who says, you know what, I just, 
I don't feel very close to God. Maybe you look around, there's other people singing songs and and they seem to be joyful in his presence this morning and you're just kind of like here because you're supposed to be and you just don't have a sense that God is real. Maybe you believe in your head that God is real. You trust the scriptures as true, but like there's just something missing in your experience of God. Maybe fasting is a way to open a door to experience that for you. We often talk about new Christians as being hungry. Like so many, many of you have a testimony, like I got saved and I got radically pulled out of this thing and I was just so hungry. I was reading the word and I was praying and I was going to every Bible study I could and I was annoying all my friends because I was talking about Jesus all the time. And that's the language we use. We're hungry for God. Maybe you used to feel that way, but you don't feel that way anymore. Fasting is an invitation to intimacy with God. And we we have to remember that this, as, as well as all the other spiritual disciplines, they're not magic. We can't control God by the things we do. This is what we saw in, a, in the passage in Isaiah. God's not impressed by our fasting. But if you are in a season of dryness or wandering or doubt or however you want to characterize that, fasting is a gift that you've been given that God is inviting you into to draw close to him. And just, just quickly, uh, if maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Maybe you've come with a friend or a family member, and, and this idea of following Jesus is, is not something that's real to you. Maybe you're interested. Maybe you're bored. I'm sorry if you're bored. But this is important. This is, this is the ultimate end of the Christian life, not, not fasting, but becoming completely satisfied by God. There are all of these things that we are pursuing, and we all do it to a greater or lesser extent. We pursue food, we pursue money, we pursue sex or power or influence, freedom. Whatever we, is our thing, we go after it and we think, this is the thing that's gonna fill me up, that's gonna make me happy. And if you've lived long enough, you realize that over and over and over again, those things have failed you. That those things are actually keeping you from being satisfied by God. Augustine in the 400s wrote, if in yourself you rouse us, speaking of God, giving us delight in glorifying you because you made us with yourself as our goal and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So maybe you're here this morning and you would say, my heart is restless. I don't know what I'm living for. I don't know what the purpose of my life is. It's knowing God. It's finding Christ. And the offer on the table is that you have been made to be in relationship with him, but you are estranged from him because of your own sin, because of the own wicked things that you do, the the darkness that lives inside you, but Jesus, the Son of God, makes a way for you to be reconnected to him by paying for your sins by his death on the cross and giving you new life through his resurrection from the dead. And this is the free gift of God that we accept as Christians. It's a done deal, a historical reality. It, was, it happened on the cross thousands of years ago. 
And in Christ, those of us that have given our allegiance to Jesus, that have repented from our sins and turned to him, we are new people. We are adopted into his family. We're given new hearts, new desires, a new purpose. And this is a theological reality. And it happens in an instant when you say, yes, God, I want you. And then we're all invited into this process of making that theological reality practical. So if you're not a Christian this morning, you can become one today. The Spirit of God is inviting you to turn from your sin and to give your allegiance to Jesus, to draw close to him because he wants you. And for those of us that are Christians, maybe, maybe you, again, you remember a time when you, you, decide, you made that decision. You said, yeah, I want to I follow Christ. I want to give him my life. I want to turn away from the sinful life that I've lived, and I want to be transformed. And you're just, maybe you still believe it, but you're just not really feeling it anymore. Life has been difficult. Things have been painful. Again, this is, this is the gift of the discipline of fasting to give you an opportunity to reorient your heart towards Christ and experience intimacy with him in a way that maybe you missed out on for a while. That brings us to my third point this morning, which is that fasting is expected. And to our text, Matthew 6, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the only explicit teaching on fasting in the New Testament. We don't get a whole big manual on it. It's just Jesus saying, hey, when you fast, don't look sad. We have one other little clue in Mark 2. We read, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Jesus came and asked him, or people came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. So what are we supposed to learn from this? One primary thing is that fasting was just a normal part of the lifestyle of the Jewish people that carried over into our Christian faith. Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, if you want to decide to fast, here's a list of options that you can choose from. Fasting is one of them. He says, when you fast. Just like before, if you read Matthew 6, he says, when you pray. And I don't think anyone would say like, well, you know, you can pray. You don't have to pray. No, we're commanded to pray. We are people who pray. Jesus uses the same language. It says, when you fast. He just assumes that his audience knows all about fasting because they've been doing it for hundreds of years. Later on, as as non-Jews began to flood the church, 
early church leaders began to give more direction on how to fast. In the Didache, which was written in about the year 100, it says, do not have your fasts with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but you should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. It's a fun little, little rule. <laughs> He's the, the, the author there is talking about the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And he's like, we don't want to fast with them. We're going to pick two different days. But notice this, the assumption is like twice a week, we're going to fast. That's just how we're going to live our lives. We learn from other early church leaders that a normal fast day began after dinner and ended the following night at dinner. Sometimes fasts were only partial. Maybe they were just a simple meal, plain bread. Sometimes Fasting was for a day or sometimes several days, maybe longer. There were 21-day fasts. There were even 40-day fasts occasionally. Most of the time, Christians have fasted from food but not water. You can only really fast from water for a couple days. But in all of that, throughout Christian history, it has always been assumed that Christians would have some kind of fasting practice. Our generation of the church largely just ignores fasting altogether. And we are conspicuously out of alignment with both the command of Jesus and the historical understanding of that command for God's people. But we also see a warning here in this passage. This warning that Jesus says is, the person who fasts is tempted toward pride. The person who fasts is, is tempted to show off their discipline and, and say, look at me, I'm so spiritual. I'm doing this thing. Aren't I awesome? C.S. Lewis says, fasting asserts the will against the appetite, the reward being self-mastery and the danger, pride. See, fasting is dangerous particularly in our day. Because if you're somebody who's going to commit to fasting, you're weird. You're just a strange person, especially if you're not doing it, you know, to get into ketosis or whatever. If you don't, never mind. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't matter. Um, the temptation that you will find, and this applies to all of the spiritual disciplines, but fasting is is maybe unique in this, is that people will think you are just like a extra good Christian. You're like on a different level. They may not like it. They might not agree with it. But the, the idea is that like you're being put in the spotlight of like, wow, you fast? What are you fasting for? That's so holy. And Jesus says, guard against that. Don't don't act like you're fasting. Don't don't get all sad and sick looking. Just go about your day. Recognize that your spiritual discipline is between you and the Lord, and he will reward you for that. If you experience success in fasting, you will be tempted to be proud. And so Jesus says, hey, when you fast, don't make a big deal about it. Do it in secret. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that nobody knows about 
your fasting? I mean, again, the Jewish people in the church have had these like regular fasting days. So if it's a fasting day in this culture, you kind of just know like, yeah, everybody's fasting. But don't go out of your way to show off your spiritual discipline. Do it sincerely because you want to reap benefits from the Lord. So as we wrap up, I just want to talk a little bit about a rhythm of fasting. Maybe, maybe some of you um, have never fasted in your life. Maybe this is just a crazy idea that you've never really thought of. Maybe some of you have been a part of our church for a number of years and you've walked with us through different seasons of fasting that we've participated in. I don't, the scriptures do not give us rules here. They do not give us, even though like the Didache was written right after the apostles died and they had this like two-day-a-week fasting rhythm, that's not in the scripture. And I think that gives us freedom to say, hey, you can fast whenever you want. However, there are a couple of seasons of the year that we as a church encourage one another to fast. And those seasons are Advent and Lent. Both of these seasons on the church calendar lead up to the greatest celebration that we have, Christmas and Easter. The, the feast days for the birth of Christ and for his resurrection. Lent lasts for six weeks prior to Easter, and Advent lasts for four weeks leading up to Christmas. If you didn't know this, the, if you're familiar with the 12 days of Christmas song, there are 12 days of Christmas, and they start on Christmas. So in, in my household, we, we start Christmas on the 25th, and we celebrate it for 12 days. It's a good, it's a good time. Prior to that is the season of Advent. Advent is a time for reflection and uh, tuning our hearts towards the expectancy of the celebration of Christ's birth. And so we're going to do this year, just like we did last year, is we're going to encourage one another to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays during Advent. And what this might look like for you, and again, there aren't any hard and fast rules, but what this might look like is that you would skip breakfast and lunch and come together with your family for dinner. No snacks throughout the day. Skip two meals on those two days of the week. This year, that's only six days. Usually Advent would have uh, eight days of fasting in it, but because of the way Christmas falls, it's six days beginning on the 6th of December. I'm going to send out some devotional emails the day prior, talk a little bit about fasting and how we might be encouraged to participate in it. And this practice leads up to the Christmas season, which is a season of feasting, which is another spiritual discipline. But if that doesn't sound like a rhythm that makes sense for you or doesn't work for you or that seems like too much or too little, do something else. I don't think there's any rules that Jesus gives us about fasting other than he expects us to do it. You have the freedom to decide how you're going to obey this command and to lean into something that might be hard but is ultimately really good for you and for the body of Christ as a whole. So I want to share a quote from Wayne Grudem as we close. He says, Most Western Christians do not fast, but if we were willing to fast more regularly, even for one or two meals we might be surprised how much more spiritual power and strength we would have in our lives and in our churches. Let's do some Q&R.
When truth is revealed or spoken, will not all aspects of our person, mind, body, and soul resonate to draw us near? How do we come to trust this? I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. I tend to think that we are all in unique places when it comes to our own um, interaction with the truth of the Holy Spirit, right? Some, some of us would be people that hear God speak in our minds really clearly. Some might be people who have really strong sense of feeling. Others who have a real strong sense in our bodies. I think our minds are a real key in discerning things that we experience in our hearts and our bodies because um, as important as it is to be in tune with your feelings, your feelings can also lie to you. And so the skill, I think, of experiencing truth is to be able to discern that truth based on God's word. John tells us to test the spirits to see if they are from Christ. And so I think if you are someone who is um, more body or heart uh, centric in the way you interact with the world, that's a good thing. God will speak to you through those things. You have gifts that are activated through those things, but you're also in danger if you don't um, run those experiences through the truth of God's word, which is processed through your mind. And so I think that's just practice. And again, I always say this, I think, but do these things in community. God does not make us his alone. He puts us into a body of people. And so if you are experiencing things and wrestling with ideas and truth, and you maybe you go to an, uh, an event and you're just stirred really emotionally, but you're like not quite sure what's going on, hold it up to God's word, bring it to God's people and say, hey, like this is what was happening. This is what was said. How should I be understanding this? And that kind of Work is, is a muscle that grows stronger as you do it. Regarding Americans' bondage to food, could you share your thoughts on our socially acceptable dependence or bondage to coffee? It's fine. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Like, we, we shouldn't be people that are in bondage to anything. So if you are a person who, I can't, you know, the T-shirt, like, no, no talking before coffee or like all of those like funny things about like, I'm going to be a terrible person if I don't get my coffee and, and until then don't talk to me. Like that's a big deal. I love coffee. But if coffee causes me to sin, I should get rid of it. So that's, that's again something that everyone should ask of them their own hearts. What about those with a history of eating disorders? Uh, I think, I'm assuming this is in regard to fasting. Um, I think it's important to um, seek the counsel of medical professionals if you have medical needs. And um, the vast majority, I think, of the people in this room would be fine engaging in a 12-hour fast. Um, but if you have concerns about that, like, I'm not, I don't know, 
talk to your doctor. Um, that would be wise. Practical approaches to fasting. What about physical limitations? I mean, this is, this is similar if there is a reason, uh, if, you're, if you're diabetic, if you're pregnant. I mean, there, there's a lot of reasons why fasting might not be a wise health move. Again, talk to your doctor about that. Um, but my hope would be that there would be some way that you could accommodate those things. Not because there's a big rule about like, well, we don't eat, but because you want to grow in your self-control. You want to grow in your intimacy with Christ. And so I would, again, say, talk with a medical professional if you have concerns about that. During a fast, is there a set time? Are you able to drink water during the fast? Yeah, so most of the time when, when somebody fasts from food for the day, uh, they, would, they would eat dinner, like say, you're going to fast on Wednesday. You'd eat dinner on Tuesday night, you'd go to bed, and then you wouldn't eat until dinner on Wednesday night. So that would be a, basically a 24-hour fast with sleeping in, in the middle. Sleeping's great because you're not hungry when you're sleeping. <laughs> and uh, that's typically how that's done. There's no rule about that, though. That's just kind of how the church has worked, worked it out over centuries. And so uh, there are times where I have fasted for lunch. I'll have a, a good breakfast and just say, hey, at noon when I would normally eat lunch, I'm going to fast. Maybe I'm going to set aside that time to pray if I have a lunch hour at work. Um, sometimes I have fasted from, um, like, uh, I don't know, extravagant foods, uh, I've, I've, I've taken several days to just eat very simple food because it's not just the, the nourishment of fasting, but it's also the pull, the bondage that we have is the pull towards sugar and salty snacks and all of those things. And to pull away from those things can be helpful. Um, I would encourage people to drink water while you fast. I think like, medically it's really important to drink water. Um, the fasting in God's word always includes water except for a couple specific instances where God did miraculous things to the person who was fasting. Um, what else? How would you advise to start fasting for someone who has never fasted? Skip one meal, 24 hours. Is there an end goal? Yeah, so that, that's great. Just work up to it. If Skip a meal and see what happens. Um, you will quickly figure out um, if you are in, in bondage to food, if you have a, think about the routines you have. If you have a breakfast routine where like, I get up every morning and I have my coffee and I have my, you know, bagel or I, my oatmeal or whatever it is, cut that meal out of your life and see how it affects you. See how you experience yourself with that skipped meal. See how you experience God through that skipped meal. You can use that time for, um, active spiritual activities, prayer and, and uh, Bible reading, or you can just go about your day and pay attention to the voice of the Lord in that moment. You will probably experience some sort of disru disruption because your body is so used to that. And, th and that's, that's what fasting brings out is um, that sort of disruption. Can a person fast pursuing both physical benefits and spiritual benefits? Does scripture ever address the bodily benefits of fasting? Um, I would say, I mean, you can't 
you can't not experience the physical benefits of fasting while you're spiritually, I mean, that's, your body will react the way it reacts, right? And that's a good thing, I think. I don't know. I'm always, I'm just confident that like in a couple of years, everybody will be like, don't fast. It's the worst thing ever. Don't do it. It makes, it gives you cancer, um, which is, you know, that's how our medical science seems to work, at least in internet list articles. Um, so yeah, is, is, there a, is there a real physical benefit to fasting? I think so. Um, I think, you know, you might point to the story in Daniel, Daniel chapter one. Um, Daniel and his friends have been taken captive by the Babylonians and they're being given this food that is not kosher. It's not okay for them to eat based on the, the laws of Israel. And they're prisoners and they're being forced to eat it. And they make this deal with the, the jailer and say, hey, um, if you will just feed us vegetables for a couple weeks and see how we do, we would really love to just do this experiment with you. And so they do that. They just have this kind of vegetable diet and they end up being healthier and um, better off than all the other prisoners who had um, had the other food. I tend to think that's more a story about the miraculous working of God to preserve them in that situation and not like, a, well, here's the best diet plan from the scriptures. I don't think that is the point. Um, but that being said, yeah, I mean, if there are physical benefits from fasting, they will, they will happen to you while you fast. Um, but the primary purpose of fasting in the scriptures is spiritual connection with the Lord. Okay, I think I got them all. If I missed your question, come talk to me later. We're going to take communion this morning. Communion is one of those places where the physical and the spiritual combined in a really mysterious way. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? While fasting is abstaining from food for spiritual benefit, communion is eating food for a spiritual benefit. And so as we sing together, if you're a Christian here today, I would invite you to come to the table and receive the bread and the cup in some spiritual way, the body and blood of Christ meant to nourish your souls. Spend some time listening to the Lord concerning fasting this morning. For some of us, we are, maybe this is new for you. Donald Whitney in his book on spiritual disciplines asks, do you need to confess and repent of any fear of fasting? If Jesus has given us a command in this area, are we people who have just been disobedient to it? And what would it look like to make a plan to fast as the Lord directs? Spend some time as we share communion asking the Lord these questions. As, you, as we worship together, you're welcome to sit or stand. The prayer rugs are available to come and kneel on. Sometimes, again, changing the posture of your body sometimes changes the posture of your soul. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.